This podcast is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Welcome to the Friendly City Books podcast. My name is Emily, and I'm the owner and founder of Friendly City Books. And today I'm really excited to be joined by author Niani Nakruma. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Niani is going to be coming to visit us here in Mississippi. Starting today, we are going on a book tour around the entire state. I hope you're ready for this. <laughs> It is going to be quite the road trip. We are going to start here in Columbus. We're kicking it off today. Then we're going to Square Books in Oxford on Tuesday, Storybooks in Cleveland on Wednesday, Lemuria Books in Jackson on Thursday. On Friday, we're going to drive down to the coast. And then on Saturday, we are going to have our last event at Pass Books in Pass Christian. And we are doing this for Niani's debut novel, Wade in the Water. So I want to make sure to hold up the book cover for those who are watching on YouTube, um, because it's a very pretty color scheme. In fact, it matches our bookstore. (laughs) (laughs) And I have really, really enjoyed reading this book. Great. Glad to hear it. um, So I would like to share Niani's background and bio before we get into the discussion. Niani was born in Boston and raised in Ghana and Zimbabwe. She developed her love of reading and writing from her mother, who taught English literature and language and encouraged her children to recite poems and Shakespeare soliloquies. After graduating from Amherst College with a dual major in biology and black studies, Nakuma received a master's degree from the University of Michigan and a PhD from Cornell University. She has lived in the Washington DC region for the past 20 years. So I would love to hear more about your childhood. Um, As a little girl growing up in Mississippi, it was always my dream to travel abroad. And I didn't get to do that until I was an adult. But can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. I had quite an interesting background. Uh, As you know, I was born in Boston, left shortly after my parents uh, moved to Ghana, West Africa, where they're from. And I grew up there till the age of 15. Now, it was a very amazing childhood, I would say. It was uh, a childhood filled with, you know, a lot of outdoor playing, kind of like you would maybe in Mississippi in the 70s and 80s. And then when I was 15, my parents moved to Zimbabwe, which is in southern Africa. And the contrast between those two countries was very, very stark. Uh, One was obviously a rich, warm community. The second place was just going through independence and a transition from former white rule to African rule. So being in those two contexts was very interesting uh, growing up for me. And then, of course, I came back to the U.S. and have been pretty much in the U.S., you know, ever since for the last 30-something years. (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah, but I do travel a lot frequently. Yes. So I believe your job probably sends you all over the world. Uh, We were just talking before the recording started about how Niani works at the World Bank. So how did that happen? What led you there? You know, for some reason, I always wanted to work for the World Bank because I was very interested and passionate about development. And I met someone when I was in my sophomore year at college, and he was an environmental specialist. And I met him uh, and I said, I want to be just like him. And actually, that is exactly what I decided to do. And that somehow, miraculously, I have followed that path. I'm a natural resource specialist slash environmental specialist at the World Bank. And I spent my life, I call myself a tree hugger. So I'm very into climate change, nature, beauty. Uh, that's one of my passions. Uh, and then, of course, my other passion is literature and books. Yes. So when did you start working on this book? When did the idea first arrive? I would say, you know, in terms of writing, I probably wrote my first kind of little novel, not novel, you know, maybe 10 pages when I was about 12. And then when I was 19, I wrote a 48 page children's novel. So I've always been interested in looking at things through children's eyes. And that got published and sold. It was just a little, you know, 48 page. It wasn't quite a book. Uh, so the idea and the the desire to be a writer has always been with me. So about, I would say maybe about seven years ago, I started this journey. I decided I was going to definitely write a book. I was part of a book club and book clubs are amazing because, you know, you're reading a book we, we read every month. And I think that just puts you in the mood. You're reading other people's work, you're criticizing it, you're enjoying it. And that just made me want to to write. So six or seven years ago, thereabouts, you know, I just started putting pen to paper and I was very busy. So I just did it a little bit at a time, a paragraph at a time. And then I took some time off work now and then to concentrate on writings. Oh, wow. Well, you know, hearing you say that, you know, you worked on this, you know, and as small bites as a paragraph at a time, I actually feel that in the writing because each paragraph and each line is very well considered, Mm -hmm. like the language choices, the word choices. Um, One reason why I enjoyed reading the book so much, um, you know, the the characters are great and the plot is very compelling, but the language Mm -hmm. is also very, it's pleasing to kind of like hear in your head as you're Mm -hmm. reading it. And I, yeah, it's almost poetic in that way. And And maybe it's because if you're doing it a paragraph at a time. You're really thinking about every word that's going in that paragraph. I literally am thinking of every word. And actually to write one chapter may take four or five months because I'm going back over and over each paragraph. And I'm saying to myself, how does it sound? Is it mm-hmm. lyrical? Am I getting across the emotion of the character? How, how am I feeling about the character? What do I want to convey? You know, have you know her feeling sad or happy, and even just the pacing of the language. You know, uh, for me that was very important in how I told the story. So it wasn't really just about the story; it was really focusing on how I told the story because I felt that was really important 
for the reader to be drawn into the story and really understand these two characters, Catherine and Ella. Uh, and I wanted them in their heads, you know. And so it was really important how I actually um, constructed the story. Yeah. Um, and did you start with one character in mind first or did they come at the same time? No, I started with Ella. Ella was my main character. Uh, she's a 12-year-old uh, African-American in this story. And she is the one I started. I had her in my head from the beginning. I knew she was going to be sassy. I knew she was going to be resilient. <laughs> Some people say to me, well, Ella is nice and resilient, but you know that she just has this little spice. <laughs> spice she does. About her. And, uh, and I think that's very compelling. They find her sweet. They find her spicy. And she's always been the main character in my head. She's the main narrator. And then after a while, Catherine came along and I also started to develop Catherine because she's the other voice in the story. And she's also a very compelling voice. And to try to get her right was something that I worked uh, hard on. Yes. In fact, let's talk a little bit more about the two characters, mm -hmm. um, because I do think they each deserve their a, a little um, time in this discussion. And let's start with Ella because Ella is so sweet. Um, and Ella reminds me uh, a lot of Matilda, who is one of my favorite yes. characters in children's literature. Because I remember, you know, in that story of Matilda, you know, she was wise beyond her years. I mean, you know, she was precocious and intelligent and bubbly, but she also came from a home environment where she wasn't appreciated. But I think where this goes even further than the Matilda story, it, I mean, it's frankly quite sad, but I think it's also more realistic and more honest is that Ella comes from an abusive household. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, that is true. I, I, it was uh, hard to read sometimes the things mm. that she was living through, especially at that age. Um, but I know that th the truth is that there are children still today who live in these circumstances. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is a story about really what she went through, like her parents and who they are. And also, I mean, I go into why the parents are the way they they are and you you kind of find that this is a it's partly due to Ella's birth position partly due to you know the history of uh, abuse in the family uh, and what has happened down the line in generations and people's thoughts and perceptions about Ella um, and so that makes for a story of a child that is looking for love. Um, and that's one of the key things about Ella. She's looking for love all over. And she does, um, when Catherine St. James comes into the picture, slowly their, their relationship evolves and Ella is, is indeed looking for that mother figure. Yes. And I think it's not a spoiler to explain to our audience that 
Um, so Ella was born out of wedlock, out of an affair that her mother had. And Ella has an older sister who is kind of the prize of the family. She's got an older brother who is very smart. And so, you know, he they also have a lot of expectations riding on him. And then she's got a younger brother. Um, and she is kind of the black sheep, sort of. Right. And the family is just very begrudging to even include her in the family. Yeah. So when you describe her as looking for love, I think that's the that's really the perfect way to describe her. She's a child who just has not been validated. Yeah. And has a lot to offer and has a lot of love to give mm -hmm. and is looking for someone to receive it and give it back to her. Yeah. And that idea actually for Ella came from a real situation that I knew uh, of a child that was the result of an affair that came became part of the, the rest of the family and was not well treated. So, so as you say, it does happen. Uh, and that was my initial idea for, for Ella and came from a true story. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, one thing that, you know, with literature is sometimes it helps us connect with, you know, difficult circumstances that, that we may have gone through or someone we know may have gone through. And so I hope that, if there are you know people out there who know of someone like Ella, that um, they can see themselves reflected in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and then we go to Catherine, who you mentioned as the other main character. And Catherine has a very interesting backstory, but she swoops into this town as kind of this new, well, I mean, you know, so let me actually, let me, for people who aren't from Mississippi, when someone who is not from Mississippi comes to town, it is a big deal. People talk about it. And I am guilty of this myself. When people come into the bookstore and they are not from Columbus, we interrogate them about who they are, where they're from, why they're in Columbus, what they're doing there, how long they're going to be there. So imagine, you know, this woman who has, you know, no apparent relationship, like, you know, no family in this um, small town of Ricksville, this fictional town where everything takes place. She just shows up one day, um, a woman who's maybe about my age, probably in the book yeah. and rents a house on the black side of town. And everyone is like, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So how did you develop Catherine? Well, Catherine's story, I just, you know, I would say plain imagination. What if, you know, uh, what if this white woman walks into this close knit society? Uh, and you see the converse a lot in other books. So for example, another Mississippi writer, if you look at the help, uh, when you're looking at the interracial relations and characters, you do find a lot of, you know, white children and black mother figures. Uh, and this time I decided for me, it was very interesting. I was like, well, what would happen if a white woman just came out of nowhere? Obviously, there is a backstory and you know what she's, you know, what she's about. Um uh, what if she shows up and how does the community react? And that is the whole context of the community and their relationship with Catherine. And, 
and how that develops. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, but just to say it sets off a lot of dynamics. It sets off, as you say, a lot of gossip, a lot of people wondering what she's doing there. Is she from the government? Is she, uh, what is she coming to do, you know, and why is she there? Um, and then people look at her a lot without saying anything directly to her. So all these things are going on um, around her. And a lot of this is conveyed to the reader by Ella because Ella is noticing what's happening in the community. Uh, so it sets up an interesting dynamic. Yes, and for all they know, she is, uh, you know, she's from the North. They have no idea that she actually grew up in Mississippi herself. And I think that we can safely say this, even if you haven't read the book, because early on um, in the book, there's kind of this parallel story development going on between Ella's day, um, Ella's life and Catherine's flashbacks to her childhood. Mm -hmm. And Catherine is from Mississippi. And um, I, one important um, point to anchor to as we talk about the book is that it is set near Philadelphia, Mississippi, and Philadelphia was where three civil rights workers were murdered by white supremacists, uh, James Cheney, Andrew Goodwin, and Michael Schwarmer. And that plays an important um, role in this book. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a touchstone in the book mm -hmm. that all of the events ultimately circle around. So um, can you talk about what led you to want to um, to to approach that um, that historic event? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, coming from Mississippi, you know, it's a pivotal point in the civil rights movement. Uh, it led to so much happening afterwards, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And how I came across it, I was just in, uh, actually in Nashville, Tennessee, at the at one of the museums. And the picture of Cheney Goodman and Schwerner was, you know, it's that famous photograph that you see probably in every single magazine, which is a picture of the FBI probably put out looking for the three men. And I've seen it tons of times. I've seen it so many times. And I didn't really sit and stare at the picture. But this particular moment, I looked at the picture and I said, wait a minute, this is 1964. You have one black man and two white men killed. And obviously they all work, I know, obviously they were all working together for core. Uh, as part of the Freedom Summer movement. And the relationship and the dynamics of the three of them, an interracial group working on one particular thing, the civil rights movement and the progression of civil rights in America. I mean, it struck me, you know, you don't often see pictures, particularly in that era of people working together like that. Uh, and then when you go into the history of what the Freedom Summer movement was all about and the university students that all came to do work in Mississippi, then, of course, you get the context. But then I thought, 
I was like, this is really where I want to anchor the story because it's really pivotal when you talk about interracial relations. You can talk about, you know, all the history that has happened. You can talk about all the bad things that have happened. But on the hopeful side, you can look and see the story of this civil rights progression and the voices and the people that actually, you know, laid down their lives for this course. And so I really wanted to uh, anchor it. And when I used that, I was probably more than halfway through the book when I went to this museum in Mississippi. And just looking at that picture was like an aha moment. And it drew everything together because then I had this focus point of where I wanted the story to end up and where I wanted people to see hope within the story um, as well. Yeah. And you know, the hopefulness um, in it, you know, I recently had a conversation with my family um, because I had uh, been interviewed by a uh, Rooted magazine. Um, mm -hmm. So Lauren Rhodes, who is going to be our moderator um, for our book tour events, is the editor of a new um, online website called Rooted Magazine that interviews Mississippians about what it means to be a Mississippian. Um, because it involves a lot of tangled up emotions. And as I was talking to my family about the interview I did, uh, one thing I heard a lot was, well, you know, can we acknowledge how far we have come? Mm -hmm. And we have, we have definitely made some progress, but it's also important not just to acknowledge how far we come, but where we were. Yeah. And, um, you know, your novel really um, brings to life what it what what it would have looked like in the 1960s to i mean to be inside the mind mm -hmm. of someone who could do such a heinous act and it reminded me of this eudora welty short story that she wrote following mm -hmm. the assassination of medgar evers called where is the voice coming from where mm -hmm. she goes inside the head of byron de la beckwith who okay assassinated Medgar Evers. How did you put yourself in like the right mind space yourself to be able to take on the point of view of a character who is hard to sympathize, sympathize with? Yeah, I did. A, that was a lot of research that I did. I mean, there are some novels out there uh, three lives from of Miss for Mississippi is one of them. There are also some books uh, which really interview people in the 1960s, both black and white people, about what went on. And they were very frank about their thoughts and their sentiments. So I would say a lot of research, some videos of that era, uh, just to get in the right headspace and the right mind frame. Um, of course, some of it is imagination, but I wanted it based on actual historical truth. So some of the words you hear are actually people's words that they're saying. Um, some of it is obviously through um, the events that happened, the Freedom Summer Movement. Um, I visited a church in Mississippi, actually near Philadelphia, and that was that's the same church that was burnt in 1964. 
and I visited them and they did do a commemoration. Uh, that's the Mount Zion Methodist Church. It's called Historic Mount Zion. And every year they do a commemoration of these three civil rights workers. And what they do have also is a book, a kind of booklet, which gives you detailed, uh, you can't get that in a history book, or maybe you can get it in the archives, but it's a detailed uh, interview with some of the church people during that time when the church was burnt and what they felt. Uh, and that gave me an additional source of information as well. So all of these things, you know, I put together to get into what I think are the hearts and minds of people at the time. Some of it is, you know, is, is also imagination. So a lot of the arguments about the farmer and why the farmer um, needed uh, people to work on the farm. Some of that is based obviously in history and some of it is also my own imagination. So. Yeah, no, so one thing that was that really struck me that was almost a little bit hard to swallow is, so you know, um, Catherine's character is she appears sympathetic to the mm -hmm. civil rights movement, but she also grew up in a home environment that promoted white supremacist ideals, and um, she is in a college class where she has to write an essay and the, the class is literally about race. Right. She signed up for it knowing that this is what the class would be about. And she keeps playing devil's advocate. And you almost wonder, is she playing devil's advocate just for the sport of it? Or does she really believe these things? And it reminded me of honest, when I was a child, the textbook that I had for Mississippi studies in uh, elementary school told us that the main reason behind the Civil War was that the South wanted to have state banks and the North wanted to have a national bank. And me, like wow. Ella, like an impressionable young 12-year-old girl, thought, well, if a book says it, it must be true because this is the book they gave to us in school and the books they give to us in school tell the truth. Right. So, you know, Catherine has been spoon fed a very revisionist history yeah. of why things are the way that they are. And she is still clinging to that when she is tested um, and when she is presented with evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. And so th those parts of the book where she is, um, where, where she and her professor are debating, sometimes it, you think, oh, maybe, maybe she is having a healthy debate over this. You mm -hmm. know, maybe she's, um, maybe her professor is getting her to think a little bit more critically about it. Mm -hmm. But then I would come away sometimes thinking, I don't know. I don't know if she really is, you know, um, taking a step forward because it seems like she's still holding on to this. Yeah. Um, and so that's exactly how I wanted the reader to feel, because in the book, we have, you know, we have no idea what's going on in Catherine's mind or where she's, you know, coming from. And definitely you can see Catherine has trauma in her life from her past. And she is 
you know, working to overcome this trauma. So this lively debate in the university setting, I mean, at, in my university setting, it would pro you would probably have those same type of debates. Uh, it's just when you go further in the book, you begin to say, well, is this really a healthy debate? What is actually going on in Catherine's mind? So, so yeah, but you are definitely right. It is, it, you're not quite sure at the, at the point in which you read that. Yes. And she's trying to make this point that, well, white people were hurt too, well, because, you know, um, as black people gained rights, she saw it as a zero sum game that I'm having to lose something for other people to make gains, which I, I hate, you know, this is the framing. Unfortunately, I wish that this weren't, you know, her thought process, but this is the thought that some people do have. Um, and, you know, she's making this economic argument. And, you know, I have often thought about, you know, Mississippi was the richest state in the country yeah. um, around the time it became a state. Yeah. And that was entirely due to having a labor force that was exploited. Right. And I don't know if we have ever been able to make sense of that and mm -hmm. figure out how to build an economy that isn't built on the backs of other people. Mm. And I wonder if that is why, you know, our state has, you know, it, it has the lowest household income today. And, you know, we don't have, uh, there, there aren't any fortune 500 companies based in Mississippi. You know, it's still a largely agrarian and, um, natural resources, heavy, uh, economy. And, you know, I'm curious, since you do work in this area professionally, mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think it takes for economies to like turn the corner and be more sustainable? Well, since I'm not an economist, I probably wouldn't talk for the economist, but I would say, I mean, just from my, you know, my own knowledge, uh, which hopefully is right, I would just probably say, you need investment in the infrastructure. The government needs to put in the infrastructures that would attract uh, businesses. You know, there needs to be capital. Um, and of course, there needs to be an educated labor force uh, that would, and, you know, maybe tax breaks that would attract uh, people into a place that is, you know, that maybe nobody thinks of. Uh, at the at the moment, but I'm not an economist, so <laughs> I wish I, I were. <laughs> I couldn't help but ask because I did used to work in public policy and, yeah. and think about these issues, <laughs> right? Because I just think it's hard for the state to move forward with that legacy until mm. we really unravel it and understand it better. And I think you know your book is going to revoke a lot of questions about have we really come to terms with the things that happened. Um, I mean, your book is set. It, it's interesting how you um, are um, shifting the perspective from an event that happened in 1964 to 20 years later, um, yeah. you know, approximately in 1982. That's a really interesting place to sit mm -hmm. and look at the um, history as opposed to being right there in 
you know, in it while it's happening or looking at it from today all the way back. And the 1980s were an interesting time in Mississippi. And I'm just going to take this opportunity to go on a little detour here. Because (laughs) in the 1980s, Mississippi was actually really moving forward in a lot of ways. Um, Mississippi had some state leaders who were um, really innovative. And um, a, a lot of people speak very highly today of the governor at that time, William Winter. Mm-hmm. I want to say he would have been governor, but I'll have to go back and double check, but it was during the 80s mm-hmm. and he was known as the education governor. This was, mm-hmm. education was his number one issue. And while he was in office, he made um, kindergarten universal. It had mm-hmm. not been at that point. Um, and he started the high school that I ultimately attended called the Mississippi School for Math and Science, which is a magnet school for 11th and 12th graders from all over the state to bring them in. And I think it's been one of the most important investments that's ever happened in the state of Mississippi, because for 30 years we've had this center of um innovation that draws, you know, the human uh, capital, you know, Mm -hmm. talented Mississippians together and changes the trajectory of their lives. Um, And then he also started this program called Governor's School, the Mississippi Governor's School, which I've been involved in for several years. I attended when I was in high school. I've gone back and taught um, uh, as an adult to current high school students. And it's another program that he put in place that was to, um, you know, to bring talented people together who might not encounter each other otherwise and Mm -hmm. give them new opportunities. So a lot was actually happening in the Mm eighties that looked like Mississippi was really going to move forward. And so it's a bit frustrating from where I sit now to see Mm -hmm. what could have been and I mean, of course, you know, there's still, you know, it, that just means it's up to, to us, right? It's up, yeah. up to me and up to the people who are here now to um, to take the torch. Um, Governor Winter actually passed away about two years ago. Oh. Um, but, it, and it was a big deal. Um, he was still oh. beloved mm-hmm. in the state of Mississippi. So I also can't help but think what he would have thought of your book. Um, I'll have to see if maybe we'll get a chance to visit with some of the family when you're here. Sure. Um. (laughs) Well, I set it in 82. And the reason I did that was I want, I didn't want to sit in the past. I wanted to look back into the past and move forward. So obviously 20 years later, a lot has happened. A lot has changed. And yet a lot probably remains the same. So I wanted the community to be able to have this, you know, knowledge. And of course, some of the people in the community are old enough to have grown up in the 1960s. So they do remember, you know, the 1960s and everything that happened with the civil rights movement. Yet the children are just coming up. So they, you know, they've read it in history books, but they don't, as I say in the book, they don't really feel it. And I wanted to set aside these, to compare these two contrasting generations where where you have the younger children who are a lot more open to Catherine St. James' arrival, and then the older, you know, members of the community who are a lot more, you know, suspicious 
and uh, careful about what she's doing in the community. And I wanted to set that up, showing that with the passage of time, things change and perspectives change from generation to generation, uh, but not to leave the past behind because it follows us and uh, to know what to do with it uh, as we move forward. So that's why I set up the book the way it is. I think it's an interesting exercise uh, for people to look at today. You know, if you look in the you know 2020s, especially these last three years and see how far we've come, um, and how much more work there is to do. We have so many fun things happening at Friendly City Books. Make sure you never miss an event or sale by signing up for our email newsletter at FriendlyCityBooks.com. All right. So we had a little break right there, but um, I just wanted to share just a little bit more of just kind of the state history that I was thinking about as I was reading the book, Wade in the Water. And I was thinking about what it meant in my hometown, because while I knew about the murders of the three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, I was innocent and ignorant of the fact that there were others that were not as prominent that had happened and that those were not an isolated incident. They were, um, you know, just the most prominent. And so in my town, I learned just a few years ago that um, the story of, uh, and actually the um, I heard this story from a, a Princeton professor to, to tie into the book that has the Princeton University connection, um, mm-hmm. Eddie Gloud, who has uh, written a few books and is on television. Um, he was telling the story of his mentor, Alan Rabito, who is from the town I grew up in, Bay St. Louis. And his father um, was, we believe, was murdered. And it was one of those cases where a group of white men came to the door and his mother answered and she was pregnant with him at the time. And uh, they asked, where's your husband? And she never saw him again. And there are lots of stories like this. Um, And in some ways, the more uh, prominent um, stories like um, the, the one in Philadelphia or Emmett Till um, have been loomed so large in our minds that um, we haven't excavated our own um, skeletons that may be in our own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I was thinking about all of this when I thought about your fictional town of Ricksville yeah. and Wade in the Water. Because, um, you know, in this community, and you mentioned, you know, so it's 20 years after the events of, you know, the early 60s. And the community has, um, on the surface level, seemed to have moved on. There's still, um, there's still segregation in a kind of like um, cultural terms, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like legal segregation um there's still a street that divides the black neighborhood from the white neighborhood but the town has 
try to move on without really dwelling on what has happened and reckoning with it and coming to terms with it. And the one other story that it made me think of from my hometown is, Mm -hmm. um, so my mother was probably in about kindergarten when schools were integrated. And when I was growing up, I remember the police station in my hometown looked like a school. It had a long row of classrooms and it had a gym and it had a cafeteria. And we used to sometimes go to the gym for theater practice or uh, volleyball games. And one day I asked my mom, isn't it weird that the police station looks like a school? And she said, it used to be the black school. I said, well, no one's ever told me that. There's no sign. There's no historical marker that says this. How am I supposed to just know I wasn't around at that time? So, um, you know, I think it goes to show the importance of making sure that this information is passed down. Yeah. And you mentioned referencing, you know, the oral history of the church that had um, been burned down Mm -hmm. um, and the importance of preserving those stories so that we can go back and look at them and see what happens. Yeah, very, very important. Um, That was, as I said, the most important information that I got. Uh, But also your reference to, you know, it wasn't just the three civil rights workers. It wasn't just uh, James Cheney, Mike Schwerner, and Andy Goodman. And part of that is resonated in the book in the part of the book, which is probably the most surprising. I'm not going to share what it is, but uh, that is where I drew that uh, chapter from, that surprising element. But um, you're right. It's pieces of hidden history that don't come to light, uh, but they are locked up somewhere. Um, If you go through old newspaper records, but they don't make it to, you know, mainstream media, uh, but they are there, those hidden truths um, that I think are important to look at, um, particularly if you're moving forward, you need to, I believe, examine the past uh, and see, you know, the impact And a lot of this book is about legacy, you know, how does that not just affect past generations, but I mean, the generations moving forward. Uh, And that's why I'm very excited that you will be giving out uh, free books to students, which is really amazing. Yes. Um, Yes. So so that is very impactful. to revisit the the history through through modern eyes, you know, uh, and I I'm hoping that this book will be very thought provoking. Uh, it, it more or less will force you to do some self reflection on both sides uh, of both communities uh, to do some reflection. Um, yeah, yeah, I know there's so much more that we could say, but. I should probably uh, save some of it for the book tour, Um, especially if we lose an internet connection again. But I do, just to reiterate and reemphasize what Niani shared, we are going to have free copies of the book, Wait in the Water, for students who come to our book tour events. So um, high school students, college students, graduate students, non-traditional students, 
Um, you know, we just want to make sure that we can get copies of this book into more hands because I think it's going to lead to a lot of really important conversations. So again, the book tour starts tonight in Columbus at Friendly City Books at 5.30 p.m. Then we are going to Square Books on Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. in Oxford. Then we are going to Cleveland on Wednesday. We will be at Storybooks at 6 p.m. On Thursday, we are going to Lemuria and Jackson at 5 p.m. And then we're going to wrap up on Saturday at Passbooks on the coast at 12 p.m. So if you can make it to one of those events, we would love to see you there. We would love for you to invite your friends and your family and any students that you know who might want to take advantage of the free book. And you can also purchase copies of the book as well at these events. You can also go to FriendlyCityBooks.com. We will make sure to get extra signed copies after the book tour that we can distribute if you'd like to get a signed copy. So, Niani, we can't wait for you to come to Mississippi. Are you I'm ready? I'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> to come back. Uh, really excited. And to hear, you know, people's questions, comments. Very excited to interact with your readers. Well, we can't wait. So, um you know, we are going to keep talking about this book all week long. And for those of you who are listening, um, go ahead, pick up a copy so that you can read along as well. And thank you. Thank you for joining us, Niani. Thank you to our audience and happy reading. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. friends, it's Emily. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!